All right, Harvest, why don't you get your Bibles open now to Galatians chapter 4 is where we're at today. And uh, as you are getting yourself situated and figured out uh, over there, grabbing your copy of God's Word, uh, I remember when I was a little kid, and maybe you would, you know, kind of share this uh, similar type of experience, but when we would go out as little kids and we'd go play, I don't know, street hockey or go skateboarding or something like that, I remember that if, if an older kid ever came out and played with us, that was like, that was a huge deal, wasn't it? Right? And you remember that, and you remember that if that older kid happened to learn your name and then use it, you're like, that, like that was like, that was the next level, right? And, you're, and, and I remember it just, it kind of filled you with this, with this kind of swagger a little bit. And, and, and it kind of, it, it, it changed kind of the way you conducted yourselves, you know, when you were, you were playing together, and it gave you this, sort of this confidence and all that, and you're like, wow, that, that older kid, he he kind of knows me, you know, and, and, and I think I'm kind of a big deal because of that now, right? And that's, that's how we thought. That's how we kind of treated uh, those kinds of situations. Now, now, maybe that sounds a little bit silly, right, when we think about that and the way, you know, we were as kids and all of that. But listen, there are some, some similarities there uh, with, uh, to how our relationship with God works, right? There absolutely is some, some parallels. And in Galatians chapter 4, Paul tells us that we have come to be known by God. That's what he says there right in the passage. And then, and then he proceeds to show us, you know, basically how we should operate as a result of the fact that we are known by God himself. We should conduct ourselves differently. We should have a little bit of a non-proud swagger. Right? We, should, we should be affected and, and carry ourselves a little bit differently or, or really a lot differently through, throughout life. Yeah, but what was happening here, of course, in the context and in Galatia, it was that the, these people, these churches here, the Galatians, they were, they were drifting away from the gospel, of course. That's what we've been talking about all the way through this, this series here. They were, you know, they were, they were walking away from it. They weren't, they weren't resting in the incredible reality that they were known by God. They were known by him. And, in, and what was it doing? Well, it was doing damage. It was doing damage to their relationship with the Lord. It was, it was putting a strain big time on their relationship with Paul. And we're going to see all of that play out. And it was also ruining some, some ministry opportunities and some serving opportunities that, that God had given them as uh, a church. It's, it's yet another reminder, as we have seen all through this letter so far, uh, that the gospel must, must take deep roots in our hearts and in our minds. Because when it does, okay, when it does, listen, we just operate, we just function properly in all kinds of different ways. And when it, when it doesn't take root, okay, when it doesn't take deep roots, we, I mean, it just makes sense, we don't function properly. We don't operate uh, the way that we, you know, really should be. And life gets more challenging and more difficult for us because our understanding of our relationship with God and his relationship with us is, is skewed. It sets everything off on this kind of warped, bent path. All right, so let's just take a look at this here and the idea that we are known by God. If you were in Galatians chapter 4, uh, let's read this right now, uh, starting... Uh, in verse 8, it says this, Formerly, 
Okay, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And although my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed, perplexed about you. God, we come before you as your church, once again recognizing that um, the gospel becomes so easily detached from our hearts and our minds. It's like you want the gospel and our lives to be sewn together, but it's like the stitching continues to come undone, and we forget that we are, we are saved, we are, we are chosen, we are adopted, and as we're going to talk about today, we are known by the God of the universe. God, I pray that as we unpack the gospel even more, Lord, would you link our hearts to this inseparably? Lord, I pray that all of life would operate out of the foundation, the understanding that you know us. God, help us in these things. Lord, we are weak people. We need the reminder constantly. We need the encouragement. We need your spirit. So God, would your spirit fall on this place right now, Lord? Would you teach your people? We're hungry. We're open-handed. We're, we're reaching out to you, God. Would you reach down and have mercy on us, Lord? We pray that in all of these things, as we talk about these things, as we study your word, Lord, would you be glorified and honored? Lord, it's not about us. It's about you. So Lord, make much of your name today. We pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, well, being known by God is, is the incredible reality that impacts my life in, I mean, so many ways, so many ways. And so we're going to look at a few of those ways here today. And the first thing, if you're following along uh, in your notes there, it's that it keeps me from turning back again to idol worship. Okay, that's what being known by God um, keeps me from doing. Okay, let's take a look at this, verse 8, okay? Let's go through these verses here. Verse 8 says this. Paul says, formerly, okay, formerly, when you did not know God, okay, so he's talking about before they got saved, before they were justified through Jesus Christ, okay, before all of that, you were, look at this word, enslaved. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Okay, you were enslaved by those. Now, a little bit of a recap here, all right? So we kind of remind ourselves of the context and what was going on and who are the players in, uh, you know, in the scene here, what's really going on. 
Okay, well, remember that there were really, you know, two main types of people uh, that were a part of these church families uh, in Galatia. Okay, so, so over here, you kind of had, you had these Jews who had converted to Christianity from Judaism. Okay, and so that was like one of the groups in the church. And then over here, you had this, this other group of people. They, were, they weren't Jews, they were Gentiles. And they, you know, formerly were involved in all kinds of, of, of pagan things and, and, you know, pagan religions and, and just flat out pagan irreligion as well. All right, so you've got these two different kind of groups of people now coexisting together under one roof under the church. Now, it's, it's not so hard to kind of picture what that would be like because that's every church, right? Every church is like that. Our church is like that too. You know, we've got a number of people here who you're relatively new to this whole game, right? You, you, you know, you've lived a life kind of doing whatever you've wanted to do. And maybe it was a little bit, you know, later in life that Jesus came and, and saved you and made the gospel so clear and helped you recognize your sinfulness and how that was a barrier between you and God and showed you that he went to the cross to forgive you. And so that's relatively new. Right? And then we've got a bunch of us here in this room as well who, you know, have, have been in the church since day one, right? You were, you were a little one and, and maybe you were even dedicated in a church like Rachel was here today. And, and you've done the youth group thing and you've done the VBS thing and you've grown kind of all the way up through that. And so we have, we have differing experiences, don't we? So when Paul here, when he says that before you knew God, Okay, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. It might be kind of natural for us to think, oh, okay, he's talking to the pagan crowd right now. That's the group, right? That, the, 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 the pagan worship that they used to be involved in with these kind of false gods, right? They would have literally bowed down to some of these things, some, down to some of these carved statues that, you know, that we know are not, they're not actual gods, okay? They're, they're not. They're, they're these man-made, you know, images of, of wood or stone or metal or whatever that don't, that don't really have any ability. They have zero ability to, to save you, right? To, to provide for you, to, you know, to fulfill you and love you, all of that kind of thing. So again, it would be really easy for us to think that that's, those are the people that he's talking to here in this moment. And, and Jews, hang on a second, I'll, I'll get to you in just, in just a minute. But listen, he's, he's not just talking to the pagan crowd. Okay, he's not. He's, he, he's addressing the entire church here uh, when he talks about thing, uh, these things. Okay, he, he's also writing to the Jews who came out of this, this religion that was really all about trying to earn your salvation through your, through your good works, through your law obedience, and, and through a very, very deep, spiritual commitment to moralistic living. That's where, that's where they have come out of. Now, you might be wondering, like, why are you belaboring this? Like, why is this, so, why is this so important? Well, because when it says that you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods, he's showing us something that's extremely important for us to understand. He's showing us that, that pagan, immoral religion or, or irreligion and moralistic religious obedience to the law, listen, they are both forms of slavery. They're both slavery. That's why he uses the word enslaved. Okay, so they're, they're both false gods, if you will. They're both idolatry. You may think, well, like, why? How? how? 
Well, because at the, at the core of these, very, these two very different looking practices, right? You think like pagan worship and, and, and just flat out immoral living and all of that looks differently than, you know, growing up in the church and following all the rules and being the good kid. Does it look different on the outside? Absolutely, it totally does. They're, they're very different looking practices, but listen, they're both the exact same at the root. Really at the core of it, when you boil it all down, they're both works-based. They both are. Pagans are trying to find uh, or achieve a salvation of sorts. They probably wouldn't use that word, but they're, try- they're trying to find salvation in, you know, or, or peace or meaning in life or purpose in life, pleasure, all of that. They're trying to find that through through outright sinful living, right? Like I, if, I, if I just fill my lives with these things, then, then I'm going to sort of get saved. I'm going to find ultimate meaning and purpose and hope in life. Or through, you know, irreligious, you know, false idol worship and, you know, trying to appease a, a stone-carved, you know, false god idol. Okay, just like those who are following the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law, are trying to find their salvation through through obedience and self-righteousness. Do you see that? Moralistic, religion, immoral, religion, irreligion. Listen, it's all works-based through and through. Okay, all of it is at the core, at the heart. And so here's here's the thing. The religious person, okay, is just as lost and just as in need of Jesus Christ as Savior as the blatantly irreligious person. Because all of it, if you think about it, all of it is us trying to be our own saviors. It's us trying to save ourselves. Now, naturally, we don't think about it that way. We think about the, you know, the radical, external, you know, obvious rebel. We think, well, that person needs Jesus more than anybody. Right? They've got so many vices and they've fallen into so many temptations and troubles. Listen, the legalistic person that's trying to earn their own salvation through their efforts, they need it just as much. They need Jesus just as much. And that's what this whole entire letter is really driving towards. And that's the message for us here as the church. And so Paul, he's saying, listen, he's like, this is who you were. You were, you, you were that kind of a person. You were lost in one version of, of works-based living or the other, right? You were all in the same boat, essentially. Okay, and now he says this, verse nine, take a look. He says, but now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to all this? You know, to the, to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years, right? He's talking about these these requirements of the law, these different festivals and stuff that that the false teachers were insisting that the Jews and and these churches had had to follow, right? You and all of it, this is what you have to do in order order to be truly loved by God. And so Paul, he's he's frustrated here. He says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. He's like, this whole thing, it just feels like it's been a big waste of my time. At once you appeared to get it, but now you're like going in the complete, completely wrong direction here. He's like, how can you, he's like, now that you know God, or rather, God knows you. Okay, we'll get to that in a second. He's like, how can you just, how can you just go back to this again? How can you go back to the weak and worthless, this is how he says it, the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. What's that all about? Well, 
What he means by that is to say that at the core of all religion and irreligion is this foundation, or he uses the word elementary, right? This elementary belief that, that we can save ourselves, that we can do this. And he says, you, you know, you've been set free from all of this. You've been set free from this, from this legalism and this, this idolatry and this trying to save yourselves through your performance or, you know, all of these th- different things. You came to understand that Jesus Christ saved you by grace through faith. He's like, why go back to all of that? He calls it weak. He calls it worthless. Why go back to that broken system? It is not helping whatsoever. And so what does Paul do here? Look very carefully. He actually points us, back, he points the Galatians here, he points us as well, reading it all these years later, back to the gospel. But he stresses that being known by God is actually uh, more important, if you will. That's kind of what he means by rather. It's, it's more important than the idea that we know him. And what he's doing, he's putting the emphasis on the fact that God accepts us. Right? He accepts us through Jesus Christ. Now, sure, we accept him in the sense that we receive him as savior in the moment that we, you know, get get justified and all of that. But more importantly, God accepts us through Jesus Christ. He adopts us. That's what we talked about just last week. He declares us righteous. He makes us spiritually clean. He declares us holy. He offers us forgiveness. He allows the slate to be wiped clean. He changes us and all of that. Okay, the point here is that our standing with God really comes down to what he has done as opposed to what we do, right? That's the bedrock of all of it. And because God is unchangeable, God's not fickle like we are, right? He's unchangeable. He never changes. He is constant. He is is good. He doesn't waver on any of those those things. Because of that, we can be assured of the fact that, that... that God knows us is a status that will never change. It's never going to change. We, we, can't, we can't improve upon that through our, through our obedience, through our, our service, through our morality. We also can't take away from that when we are evil, when we have a bad day, when we have a, when we have a bad week or a bad month or a bad year. If we truly know Jesus Christ, he knows us and that is never changing. And listen, when our hearts grasp that, guess what? We won't ever want to turn back to idols. Right? We're not going to want to go back to all that stuff. Okay, Tim Keller, I feel like he is a personal friend at this point um, <laughs> of me and our church. Right? He's been helping us out with uh, a number of things. Um, how great would it be to have that guy come preach here at some point? Listen, this is what he says. He says, it is our insecurity regarding our acceptance with God, which is the reason we make idols. So true. So true. He goes on. He says, the great and central basis of Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God, but how unshakably his heart is set on us. And if we begin to grasp that we are known by God, we won't seek to bolster our self-image or standing before him through our works. We won't worship any idol. We will love him, the one who knows us. Love that. And hey, Keller is so right. He is so on the money to identify our, secure, our insecurities as the root of the problem. Right? Have, you, have you realized just how insecure we are as people? We're insecure about everything. Right? We're insecure about 
about our bodies, right? Like I, I don't like the way I look and so I'm going I'm to try and cover myself up or I'm going to, you know, try and hide, you know, that. We're, we're insecure about what people think of us. You know, and maybe you've even come into this room thinking, I hope that person approves of me and, you know, I hope that person, you know, likes the way I look and all of that kind of stuff. We're insecure about our, about our salaries, is it enough? We're insecure about the, the car we drive. What is this? What is this? The vehicle that I drive say about my status, right? Is a person, you know, shaking their head because I've got rust on my car? Like, right? I'm insecure about that. We're insecure about our past and, and our upbringing and, and all of that. We're insecure about our future. Where, where are we going? What's happening here? I'm, I'm insecure about my present in this very moment because the pastor keeps using the word insecurity and, and I'm uncomfortable, if you didn't laugh, I would have been really insecure right there <laughs> about that attempt at humor. Right? We're so insecure. And it's, it's these insecurities that stem from a deep enough heart belief okay, that God knows us. We, we, we know it up here, right? Are you realizing this is the problem for us? It's not a lack of knowledge, we are knowledged out. We're almost drowning in knowledge. It's heart belief. It's the, what is this? Like a nine inch gap, six inch gap. I'm short. It's shorter for me, I guess. <laughs> right? That's the problem. We know it, but our hearts don't. Our, our, our hearts have, have a really hard time with all of this. And that's the very thing that causes us to turn back again to the various idols that we worship. That's the thing. And so, kind of depending on your natural inclination and, and kind of the way your heart sort of operates, you're going to turn. If you're, not, if you're not settled on the fact that God knows you and finding your identity in all of that, what are you going to do? You're going to turn in your idolatry either to blatant irreligious idolatry where you're just trying to fill your life with all of the fleeting pleasures of sin and, and I, I just want to feel something good and so I'm going to go after whatever those things are and those things become idols. And those things don't really satisfy us, uh, of course, but I, I, want to just, I want to feel something in the moment. Ple- this, again, this pleasure, as, as, as short-term as that may be and regardless of the consequences that I'm going to face or people I love around me will face. Okay, and so that might be the natural inclination of your heart and you continue to go back to you know, this foolishness of your life before Jesus Christ and, 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 and all of that sin, that, that's still a temptation and still a draw because you're not solidified in the fact that God knows you. Okay, that's one direction you might go. Or, okay, or... And this is huge for Christians. We need to listen up to this one. This is another, another thing we can turn to. Moralistic religious idolatry. Moralistic religious idolatry. Where we try to make ourselves feel secure, not through like going after blatant outright sin, but by going after awesome performance to the law by trying to behave well enough to impress the Lord or impress uh, other people. Do you do this? Do you do this? For example, are you like, well, hey, listen, I, I read my Bible a lot this week. I performed well. Look at me. Look at me go. Right? I'm, I'm doing really well here. And you've got, that, you've got that strut. And you feel really secure in that moment because your performance that week has been pretty good. But then what happens? 
You have a bad day, you have a bad week, you have a bad month, and all of a sudden you're like, I'm brutal, I'm the worst, because you're basing the entire thing on your performance, which has been terrible of late. Right, do you see that? You see how you are, that becomes idolatry for you? Or maybe for you, it's serving in the church. I'm serving in all these different ministries and I'm on the worship team and I'm helping out in Harvest Kids. And hey, and guess what? I also come in and I, and I set up and I'm a small group leader and you know, all of these different things and I'm serving really well. And you know, that's where I find my security in for sure. But if, if something happens and you know, life gets overly busy or stressful and you have to, you know, you can't, you can't make it one Sunday or you have to cancel serving for some reason in some way or, or you get sick and you can't show up, all of a sudden your insecurity starts to rise up because you're basing your security on your performance and your performance hasn't been very good of late. Now the danger here, the danger, and this is why this is so important for us to understand this is the church the danger is that externally, all of this looks great, right? It all looks great. Wow, that person, that person's so great at reading the Bible and they, they have so much knowledge and wow, that person's serving in like 15 ministries and wow, how great are they? They are a servant of the Lord and uh, you know, they are better than me and all of that. But listen, internally, maybe what's going on in that person or if this is you, it's, your, it's a heart that's turning back into idolatry. You're trying to earn a standing with the Lord. You're trying to make yourself secure through your obedience, through your performance, through your works. Those have become your idols. Listen, why is this so dangerous? I would, I would suggest this, okay? That, that religious, moralistic idolatry is perhaps more dangerous than the external irreligion and the running after sin and all of those things because, because the obvious rebel who is just doing all the bad things, that's obvious sin. Like we look at that, that person doing it looks at that and we're like, yeah, I'm totally doing the wrong thing. Right? You think about the, the prodigal son. We always make it about the youngest rebellious son. It's about two sons. Right? The, the younger son, he's the one who just goes in and, and blows all his, all his father's money on, on prostitutes and on wild living and all of those things. What does the older son do? He's at home with his father, slaving after, oh, over him, doing everything that the father said. But listen, what, what we realize and what we see at the end of that story, it's the rebellious younger son that gets right with the Lord. The older son does not. Why? Because he's, he's, he's basing his relationship with the father on his performance. The father's trying to say, listen, all, I've, all, all I have is, is yours, right? You don't have to earn anything. I, I, I give it to you, to you freely. Listen, that's the danger for the church. I, I believe that, that the church, churches everywhere are full of people who on the outside look like they're doing all the right things and think that they're doing all of the right things, but in the, in the heart, it's not there. Right? Because again, they're trying to perform. They're not, they're not operating out of the basis that God knows them and therefore I want to serve and I want to do that well. No, they're doing it to, to mask insecurities. And you see how subtle that can be? Optically, you and I, we can't see that. And that's why the gospel's so awesome because it starts to till the soil of the heart. It starts to show us what's actually going on under the hood, underneath the surface. 
and it can get in there and it can, it can convict and it can, it can set things straight again and, and get us operating the way that, that we should be operating. Listen, if, if any of this at all strikes a chord with you, recognize that the solution, regardless of what your insecurities are, what your idols are, regardless of all of that, it's to camp out in the incredible reality that you are known by God. You are known by him. That word known signifies a deep personal connection. It's not like, hey, yeah, I think I remember that guy's name. That's not what God's saying. Like, I know you, right? We, we you know, connect it to what we talked about last week. You've been adopted. He, he, he is your heavenly father, Abba, father. You have this incredible relationship with him now. You are known by God. We should be thinking, wow, God knows me. This is amazing. That, and recognize that's what my heart really wants. All of the yearnings that I have and, and all the, you know, the hole in my heart that I'm trying to fill with, with sin, that I'm trying to fill with performance and legalism and all of that. What I really want is a close relationship with the Lord. Well, guess what? You've got it. Jesus secured it for you. You were known by God the Father. And that's what brings us true satisfaction. That's what brings us true joy and pleasure and that security that we're all longing for. We should be thinking the more that the gospel starts to implant itself deeply into our hearts, the more we should be thinking, why would I ever want to go to any other idols? This is nonsense. It doesn't make sense at all. It's actually harming me and harming others to be doing that. All right, here's the second thing. Spent a lot of time on that first one. I just want you to know I'm aware of that, okay? <laughs> These next two will be a little shorter. You guys are thinking, oh boy, I can be here for a couple hours. Here it is. Being known by God is the incredible reality that produces authentic joy in serving those around me. Authentic joy. Now the Galatians... Uh, how do you think they were doing in terms of joy? Yeah, not so great. They had completely lost their joy here. Take a look at this, verse 12. Okay, he says this, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. And so he, what's this all about? Well, he, he's urging them to become like him in the sense that they too should be finding their joy, they should be finding their worth, and they're standing in Christ alone, just like, just like he was. Right? Not in their legalistic efforts or their performance or whatever. Okay? For I also have become as you are, is to say that when, when Paul was initially building relationships with these people and they were you know, starting this church and watching this church uh, grow and get off the ground and all of that, he never insisted that these people, and remember a large part of them were, were Gentiles that didn't have the same Jewish upbringing and culture that, that he did. He never insisted that they needed to have all of that. Or he didn't. He wasn't saying, like, you need to look like me and, and, and dress like me and, and act like me and follow the, the rules and the law the way that I have. No, he's saying he became like them, meaning that he inserted himself into their culture. He came to enjoy the things that made them unique. He ate the foods that they ate. He enjoyed the unique elements that their culture Practiced. Why? Well, so as to show that Christ alone makes us acceptable in God's sight, not adherence to cultural norms. Okay, not, it's not about the, the clothes you wear, the foods you eat or don't eat. The, you know, it's, it's not about the, you know, the, the, the festivals and the rituals you follow. No, it's not about any of that kind of thing. And then he says this, keep going. He says, you did me no wrong. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, 
you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. And he says this, what then has become of your blessedness? Okay, that word blessedness there literally meaning joy. Right? What's become of your, of your joy? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. That sounds kind of weird at first. We'll get to it. Well, let's get to it right now. Why go on, right? I think the idea here is that Paul, and what we kind of, kind of glean from the text here, is that Paul started this church not of his own doing. It wasn't his plan. It sounds like on his missionary journeys, wherever he was going, he had some kind of bodily ailment. He had some kind of, of physical problem that caused him to stop in Galatia and ultimately plant a church. How awesome is that? Right? And it sounds like, I mean, if we're kind of deducing here, it seems like maybe it was a, like a physical eye problem. Right? And it says that you would have gouged your eyes out and given them to me. That's how much you loved to serve me. That's where your hearts were at. And then he says this, have I, have I then become your enemy by, by telling you the truth, right? So Paul, he's pointing back to a time where the Galatians had served him so well. He's like, I knew that this was a trial to you. This wasn't an easy problem, me coming with my eye problem or whatever it was, but you, you received me so well. You served me so well. You received me as Jesus Christ uh, himself. It, it, was, it was once so good. Our relationship was so tight. What was, what was obviously happening here? A rift had developed between them. And, and the relationship was strained. And it was because Paul had to call them out here. They were going astray. And he couldn't just act like nothing was wrong. Something was big time wrong. The gospel was being warped in this church. And it was causing some serious problems. And far from expressing the joy that they had, had once shown and once had, Paul says, now I feel like an enemy. That's the word he uses. Their abandonment of the gospel on, on a heart level was, was severely impacting their joy. It was severely impacting their service and the ministry that God had entrusted to them. Now, if you want to kind of look at this in more of a positive sense, for us, it's that, our, it's that our joy in serving our, our ministry increases as our hearts become thrilled with the gospel. Do you see that there? That's kind of the positive angle of all of this. It's specifically, of course, when we're talking about the, the, the gospel and we're, we're pinpointing different elements here, of course, the reality that we're known by God. That's the thing that increases our joy, that increases our desire to serve. Okay, so let me ask you this. Hey, how are you guys doing in terms of your joy in serving? Right, because here, here's the cool thing about our church. So many of you are serving in more than one way. Right, it's such an encouragement, such a blessing. I walk in here, you know, on a Sunday morning, and I'm not even close to the first person to arrive. You know, and there's so many people serving in different ways that, you know, I, I necessarily don't even know all the different details. I don't know all the sacrifice that's gone into it, all the work that you've had to put in, you know, outside of church hours, so to speak. You know, you guys are serving and you're serving, you're serving hard. Many of you are serving very hard. And I love that. Such a high percentage of you doing uh, that very thing. But again, the question kind of remains, how would you rate your joy in all of that? Right? Like if we wanted even to look at it in like a scale of one to ten. Right? 10 being like through the roof, celebrating. I want to cheer as you're saying this, Pastor. Right, 
that's maybe you, you're a 10, or, or one being a, uh. right, by the way, you don't have to like shout out where you are on that scale. Can you imagine how discouraging it would be if people were like, minus three. <laughs> right, that'd be tough to swallow for sure. Okay, but where are you at when it comes to your joy? Where are you at when it comes to the passion? Because here's the thing, serving is hard. Serving is hard. Have you recognized that yet? I think sometimes we come into serving in the church and serving people even outside of the church, and we kind of think that because the Lord calls us to do it, it's going to be nothing but sunny skies. And we think that, hey, listen, this is going to be great, and I'm just going to grow like a weed, and I'm going to be able to see that you know, every, every moment that I serve, and my joy is just going to continue to increase, and, and my happiness and all of this. And you know, everyone, as I serve them, are just going to fall on their knees in repentance, crying out for salvation and all of that. And we sort of have this sort of pie-in-the-sky view of serving and don't recognize that, listen, it's going to be tough. And listen, it gets tough pretty quick. Just ask anybody on our setup and teardown teams. Right? And, and, and in all of our ministry, though, we can come into this thing, and this is going to be so great, but then guess what ends up happening? We fizzle, and we kind of fade out, and sometimes we look for any excuse possible to renege on our commitments here and back away from this. And, you know, sometimes we put, you know, someone else will do it. That's kind of our mentality. And, again, it's easy and it's typical to start strong in your serving and then, you know, sort of flame out. But listen, in light of this text, you have to wonder if a, a lack of joy in serving and maybe the presence of a, of a bad attitude on a, on a Sunday morning or through the week when it comes to your serving is, you know, in many ways, just the result of our hearts drifting away from the reality that we're known by God. Our hearts have drifted from the gospel. We haven't thought about it. We haven't preached it to ourselves. We haven't thanked God for our salvation. And so because of that, our hearts grow cold. And now serving, it's not a joy anymore. It becomes a huge hassle, right? And we don't want to do it. And I don't want to talk to my neighbor after church who's out in the driveway and asking me about what I did this, this morning, right? And I don't want to share the gospel with people. I don't have the heart to do that. And, and not that everything just seems like a huge hassle, right? And that's kind of how we, you know, sometimes, sometimes feel about all of that. We've got to remind ourselves that God knows us. That's the thing that gives us the strength. That's the gasoline in our tank. That's the flame to our fire. Now, it might be, again, a bit of a funny comparison, but, but just how, or just like how that, you know, that older kid, you know, calling that younger kid by name in a game of street hockey, you know, kind of fires that kid up and, you know, it makes, you know, gives him confidence and boldness. And I'm going to get in there and I'm going to play harder and I'm going to have more confidence in all of that. Listen, as all of that causes a kid to rise to the challenge, listen, God knowing us personally, God knowing us by name fills us with confidence and joy as we serve. It really does. It makes us like, I want to go harder now. I'm so blown away by, by the fact that the Lord loves me because I've had a bad week. I've had a bad month. In fact, you know what? It's been a bad year. And the fact that the Lord continues to, continues to forgive me, continues to offer me grace that I sorely don't deserve but desperately need, man, I just want to give my life to you, Lord. Continue to take me, continue to mold me, continue to do what you want. All right, last thing here. 
being known by God as the incredible reality that generates Christ-likeness instead of an inflated ego. Instead of an inflated ego. Take a look at this, verse 17. Paul says, they. Okay, so he's talking, who's the they? Well, he's talking about the false teachers again. Okay, back at these guys. He says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. And so what was happening here is that the false teachers, they were, they were really, they were flattering the Galatian Christians so that they, so that ultimately they would receive flattery back. You ever been in a kind of a conversation like that? Someone tells you um, how great you look today, but it kind, of, it kind of feels like they're fishing for a compliment maybe. That's sort of what was happening here with the false teachers. And what does that reveal? What does that show? Well, it shows their insecurities for sure, right? It shows that they, they need to have their egos stroked. That's what's happening with them. And Paul just like nails it. Right? When our hearts are unsure of our status and our standing and that we are known by God, we, uh, we will always look to other things to prop up our, our fragile egos. And those, those other things, whatever they are, those are idols. Those are idols that we, in effect, worship. Okay, keep going, verse 18. He says, It's always good to be made much of for, for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until, and then listen, Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Okay, Paul, Paul's, first of all, you sense here this, this longing, right? He has such a longing in his heart to, to see this church, these churches, these, these fellow believers further down the line in terms of Christ's likeness. He wishes that, that more had been developed in their hearts and they had grown more in all of this. He says, I want, to see, I want to see Christ formed in you. That's his heart. That's his desire. And Christ's likeness is what God generates in us as we rest in the reality that we are known by him. Okay, but the Galatians, obviously, as we're reading this, we kind of see this. They're, they're not even in the right ballpark at this point. Right? They're, they're too, too, too kind of busy and caught up with the false teachers just like massaging each other's egos. No, you're really great about following the law. No, no, you're better. Right? And they're creating like this, this sect kind of thing, this, this special elitist group where they're trying to shut people out who don't follow the law as, as good as, as they do. And, and, and I mean, you really sense Paul's tone here in this, don't you, as you read it. It says that he's perplexed. He's like, he's so bothered by this. He's upset. He's, he, he's burdened by this church that he loves. He calls them brothers, right? He knows them. He loves them. He's not a bunch of people that he doesn't know, nameless, faceless people. These are people he loves that started the church with him. And he's, he's, he's just, he's deeply rattled that, that it's all come down to this. You know, as we, as we head from here today and, you know, in a few moments, Let's really allow Paul's tone and, and, and his burden here that we see in the text, let's, let, let's allow that to become, to become our burden. Let's allow that, you know, let, let's have that same sense of urgency that Paul has here as he continues to put the gospel before them and call them back into that. Let's have that same kind of urgency about ourselves. Let's have that to be more Christ-like. We've got to have the gospel sink deep. Sometimes we can get so laid back about all of this. And maybe that's kind of woven into our hearts or woven into our culture in Canada and we're so laid back and chill and, and, and we don't sense that urgency and we don't go after these things in the, in the power that Christ provides. 
We need to feel that urgency to be less and less okay with, with our egos calling the shots. You know, some of us here, we're hearing this and we're seeing this all through the message today and all through this series and we're realizing, yeah, this is where I'm legalistic. This is where my ego is ruling the roost. But then we kind of identify, but then don't really do anything with it. And again, it's this kind of, this kind of lazy mentality about our, about our growth. And we gotta be done with all of that. No more egos calling the shots. Less and less okay with mechanical and stale and boring obedience, trumping passionate hearts that are infatuated with grace. Right? We gotta be less content with, with lives that just look like the world. You know, anyone can look at our day and, and look at our calendar and look how we spend our evenings and our weekends and our money and our time and our relationships and have no idea that we're Christians. Okay, we, we should be so much more uncomfortable and burdened and feel this urgency like Paul feels here and say, enough of all that nonsense. I need to be marked by, by biblical holiness, Christ-likeness. That's what the gospel does as we come before it. It will drive us to these places. Is it doing that in you? Listen, you might be like, well, why are you getting so fired up, pastor? Why are you so amped about this? Well, because I am that person, right? I am that person that needs this. I am a recovering legalist. You know, I continually have to push the gospel in front of my heart. I continually have to remind myself of it. And literally, as we're singing the song before we get up here, I'm reminding myself, I'm known by God. Lord, may I find joy and hope in that as, we open, as I open your word. Reminding ourselves of that on our drive to work. Reminding ourselves of that on our weekends, on our vacations, when life is up and when life is down. Because listen, everything, everything our hearts truly long for flows out of this. All of life flows out of this understanding that we are known by him. So I want to pray for us now and continue to pray that the Lord would wed the awesomeness of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, his goodness to us, to hearts that are so fickle, hearts that are you know, waning in these things, our forgetful hearts, our hearts that don't care when we should,